We are here now in a very pastoral section of this letter. Up until this point, this has been theology, 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 theology. Paul has been defending in chapters 1 and 2, defending his apostolic authority. In chapters 3 and 4, he's been talking about justification by faith alone and illustrating from the Scriptures how that, that truth has been taught throughout the Old Testament, and now Paul is teaching it as well, that the law is fulfilled in Christ, that the only remedy for human guilt is the great truth of justification by faith alone. That's what he's been doing. Now we get to chapter 5, and Paul becomes extremely pastoral. In other words, you're going to get, we're going to get a little more imperative. What does that mean? That's we're going to get some commands. We haven't gotten a lot of commands up until this point. We're going to get a lot of commands, though. Chapters 5 and 6 are filled with things that we're called to do. Now, why do you think Paul would, would structure his letter that way? It's the way he structures all of his letters. Why might he do that? Let's think about it. What are the Galatians turning to? You should know this by now. Works of the law. They're turning to their own works to justify themselves before God. So wouldn't it be odd if Paul began this letter by talking about works? They'd get confused. So he wants to show them that works that come at the end of the letter follow as a response to the great love and mercy that Christ has shown us. You get it, guys? Don't forget that. Too many times we forget that. We think that our works justify us. But now, practical application. Chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free functions as a transitional sentence in the letter. It moves us from all of the theology he's been doing thus far to pastoral application. And Paul is, he continues in his level of concern for these guys. He planted this church, he loves these guys, and he is seriously concerned for them. And we're going to see that in a minute. What I want to do this morning is show you, I want to observe from this text two things. Paul's pastoral concern for a church that is on the brink of losing the gospel. Why is that applicable to us? Oh, that's very applicable to us. This is very applicable to us. We are, like the Galatians, vulnerable to the, to the allure of the world, the philosophies of the world, to turn away from Christ and to put our faith and trust in some other solution. And when we do that, we're in danger of fumbling away the gospel and losing the gospel. So Paul's concerns for the Galatians are his concerns for Brandywine Grace. Paul's concerns for the Galatian, Paul's concern for the Galatian, Galatians is his concern for all churches. If Peter can stumble with the gospel, can fall, away from Christ 
in his understanding and application of the gospel, then certainly we can as well. You remember these, these things that Paul was showing us in the beginning of this letter. So Paul is a man concerned. He is a pastor who is concerned. And in his concern, he offers them truth. He tells them what his concerns are for them. And so I want to show you what his three concerns are for the Galatians. And then he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just tell them what his concerns are. He actually offers a solution. So these, this is how we're going to break it down. Paul's three pastoral concerns and then the solution that he offered. Let's look to his word for those things. Three pastoral concerns. So if you're a note taker, it's going to sound like a lot. I'm going to try to push through these concerns so that we can get through the solution. But I want to offer you three pastoral concerns. The first, apostasy. Spiritual apostasy. What does that mean? Turning away. Paul's primary concern is they're going to turn to another gospel. And in turning to another gospel, they're going to turn away from Jesus. That's his first concern. Look at how he shows it. Look at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be what, church? Of no advantage. So if you, if you accept this false teaching, this teaching of the Judaizers, what I'm saying is accepting it is to, to, to render the work of Christ as of how much of advantage? A small advantage? Uh, a, a certain percentage of an, an advantage? He's saying if you accept it, if you accept this teaching, Jesus, no advantage. He's concerned. That's why he says, look, I, Paul, say to you. Then he then he's, look at what he says in verse 3. I testify. Paul is concerned. He's saying, I bring witnesses against you. I'm testifying here that if you buy in to this false teaching, Christ is of no advantage. If you accept circumcision, if you, if you want to accept one part of the law, you're under obligation. If you believe that one part of the law is going to justify you before God, well, then you're under obligation for all of it. And you can't do it. And then he says, look at verse 4. You're severed from Christ. Serious language here. You, who's severed from Christ? You who would be justified by the law. And then how does he end it? You've fallen away. Oh, grace. What's Paul's primary concern, or what's Paul's, one of his major concerns is that they would fall away from grace. If we lose the gospel, Brandywine Grace, what are we vulnerable to? We're vulnerable to spiritual apostasy. If you lose the gospel, you're, one, you're, you're just a couple steps away from turning on Christ and Christ being of no advantage to you. Spiritual decapitation is what he's talking about. Being severed, cut off, decapitated, no life. Dead, cutting yourself off from Jesus. Now, some of you maybe are sitting here and thinking, man, that's really troubling. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to be thinking. 
It's troubling for those, and, and I want, and, I, and, and, and this passage and this letter will encourage people. There's some of you are sitting here, and you're the people I would put in this category. You struggle with a sense of assurance. You ever meet Christians? Some Christians just struggle more than others with a sense of assurance. We all do to some degree. I mean, I, I haven't met a Christian yet who really honestly, if you were to ask them, are you always 100% confident and, and assured that Jesus loves you and you're going you're gonna to finish the race and be in his presence? They're, they're, we all battle doubts. But when you start saying these kinds of things to people who are vulnerable to those doubts, this kind of passage is it's unsettling. And then, it, and then you got the group of people that would say, well, wait a second, man, I thought you can't lose your salvation. Well, you can't. What, it, what Paul is getting at here, though, is a question it raises, were you ever really saved? That's unsettling. That's theologically disturbing. I don't like theological disturbance. I, I like what I, I like kind of framing things out and then kind of walking away from it. I got this, you know, I've got this all figured out. I don't want you, Paul, unsettling me. Because it seems like, Paul, that you're saying that the possibility of, real, of falling away is actually real. Are you saying that, Paul? I think he's saying that. He's saying it, right? No advantage? Severed? Falling away from grace? Falling away from Jesus? Paul's concerned about spiritual apostasy. But it's not his only concern. His second concern, I was trying to come up with a way to say this, and I've wrestled all week, but this is how I'm going to say it. His second concern is like a half-hearted obedience, a half-hearted commitment to Christ. Where do I see that? Well, he says in verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So, so he says you were running well. Let's get that picture in our mind. You're running. You're running fast. Who hindered you? What happened to their running when they got hindered? It must have slowed down. It must have been starting and stopping and halting and kind of half-hearted. Ultimately, the concern is very similar to apostasy, right? Because if you don't finish the race, then it ends up in the same place as his first concern, right? But he's concerned that the Galatians are half-hearted in their commitment to Christ. They're turning back. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. They've been bewitched. And he's concerned. Now, notice that Paul's concerned too. Like when we think about apostasy or when we think about uh, kind of half-hearted obedience, particularly in the category of apostasy, we think of like 
Have you committed spiritual apostasy? That's the question. And so we think of that as, oh, that's the atheist. That's the one who is like violently rejecting the truth. But all it says, all that they're doing is adding circumcision to Christ. It's like, it's Paul, we're just like adding one little thing. Yeah. Little snip. It's not a big deal. Paul is saying it's a big deal. Paul is saying that it's no, if you add some piece of the law to your understanding of grace and justification by faith alone, you gotta add it all. You gotta be you're under obligation to do it all. And Paul knows from experience it can't be done. That's why Jesus, that's why God sent Jesus to do for you what you could never do for yourself. You can't get to God on your own. That's the point. God sent Jesus to get you, and that's why it's good news. It's not good news for you to keep working, to try to hold on to your salvation, try to get God to like you. That's not good news, especially when you understand that it's impossible to do. That's not good news. One little thing, they say. Listen, but Paul's getting all bent out of shape. It's just one little thing. Paul says, listen, that one little thing nullifies the advantages of Christ. So much that he would say, why stop there? Keep right on snipping. Cut the whole thing off. That's what he said. He's concerned about their half-hearted, weak effort obedience. But then notice this. I love this. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view than mine. It doesn't make sense to write the letter of Galatians if they were already apostatized. It only makes sense to write the letter if he had hope that they were going to turn away from these false teachers and turn back to Christ. And what does he say? After this, I I think there's a lesson here for us. Here Paul gives a warning of the sternest kind. Like basically he's saying, if you keep going the way you are, you're going to hell. When's the last time you said that to somebody? Seems so unkind. Well, it's not unkind if it's the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts, right? But what does Paul do in giving them a hard truth? He wounds them with truth. He cuts them with truth, and then he's got a bandage ready. I have confidence. Here, let me... And then I see you're bleeding now. Let me, let me just wrap you up here. I have confidence that the Jesus is going to open your eyes and help you to see how, how foolish this would be to turn away from the gospel. I have confidence that God's going to do that in you. I have confidence that you're going to keep running after Jesus. Do you do that in your relationships and those that you have fellowship with, in the, in the people that you're discipling, in your parenting? Are you doing that? Are you, are you coming with the hard word but then coming behind it with the bandage? Would it, wouldn't it be great if we did that more? Wouldn't it be great if we, we offered truth but then and, and recognized that it hurt but then spoke our hope for people? 
Wonder how much further we'd get if we took Paul's example. We get tired of people that don't listen to us. Don't you? We get tired of it. When's the last time you wrote a letter as long as Galatians to someone who you felt like wasn't listening to you? It's care. He loves them. He actually truly cares about them. And he's speaking words of comfort. Third concern. Third concern. So he's got this concern of apostasy, half-hearted obedience, and his third concern is what I'm categorizing a busted unity. Busted up church. Where do I see it? Look. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What's Paul's concern here? His concern is that false teaching will never build the kind of church that Jesus is looking to build. False teaching won't bring unity. False teaching actually brings disunity. And so he's concerned that they're going to devour one another. They're going to bite one another. They're going to consume one another. That false teaching creates spiritual cannibalism. This is his concern. Paul's concern is that the Galatian church spends too much time on Twitter. False teaching never unifies. It always divides. Legalism leads to censuring, which leads to self-righteous judgment, which leads to cliques in the church, which leads to fighting and pride. There it is how it works if you you get you get into a church setting and this can happen to us for anyone grace it does happen to us but if we if we elevate our standards above the gospel then what we do is we start judging people based on our standards. And this is what happens. And you bite and you devour one another. But if we make the Gospel free grace, what holds us together and what saves us and what keeps us secure and what motivates us, then we have a a hope of being a people that look very different than what Paul is concerned is going to happen to the Galatians. Paul's concerns are for this church that is losing the Gospel. Where do you see these concerns at work in you? Where do you, see, where do you see God taking these concerns and the Holy Spirit saying to you, what about you? 
Are you in danger of apostasy? Are you in danger of a half-hearted following of Jesus? Are you in danger of, of a busted unity? That's Paul's concerns. Now, let's talk about the solution. Solution for those that are close to losing the gospel. What is it? What's the solution? Chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What is the solution for Paul's concerns for a church that's on the brink of losing the gospel? It's Christian freedom. That's the solution. Christian freedom. We need to understand it, we need to protect it, and we need to use it. Christian freedom. So let's spend some time just talking about Christian freedom. Understanding it, protecting it, and using it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. See, we tend to have a wrong view of freedom. We tend to think of freedom as that which frees us to do whatever we want. We tend to think of freedom as this freedom is what allows me to pursue other things. Freedom is always a road to something else. Paul is saying something very different right here. He is saying that the goal of the gospel is your freedom. In other words, here we have Jesus' motivation. Why did Jesus save you? Why does Jesus desire to save you? The answer is right here. For freedom. Jesus has set you free. For liberation, Jesus has liberated you. This is his motive. And you know, that's what we really have always ever wanted. That's what deep down you really want. In your soul, you want to know that you're free. Well, well how are we enslaved? Paul's been talking about slavery. And if you want to listen to some really good messages on that, the last one that J. Russ just did last Sunday, go on the podcast and listen to that. He'll explain that last section on Hagar and Sarah. But freedom, our souls see our bondage to sin. It's who you are deep down. And who you are deep down longs to experience freedom, longs to be really free. But sin keeps us in secrecy, in lies, a lack of joy, a lack of fulfillment. And the soul cries out, I want to be free! I want to be free! When you go running after things that you think will bring you satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment, and then you find out you're still saying the same thing, your soul inwardly is crying out, I want to be free! I want to be free. And what Paul is saying, what the Bible teaches us, is that it's for that freedom that you long for that Jesus came. And it's the work of Jesus that ultimately gives us that freedom. Are you free this morning? Are you free? It's because of Christ you're free. Are you here this morning and you're longing in that deep place of who you are? I want to be free. I want to be free. It's through Jesus. Turn to Christ. 
It's the only freedom that the world has to offer. The slave math, the, the, the things that mastered us prior to Christ, the world, the flesh, the devil, they were cruel taskmasters. They were t- telling us lies, telling us that we could find freedom and joy and fulfillment in the things of this world, in the flesh. The enemy lying to us all the time. Christ offering true and real freedom. If you cry out to Jesus, He will set you free. So we've got to understand our freedom and enjoy our freedom. There's so many references in the Scriptures, in the epistles Paul wrote to, to references from freedom. Can I just read a couple to you? Let's listen to these. We're free from the curse of the law. We're free from the curse of Adam. We're free from spiritual death. We're free from the fear of death. We're free from condemnation. We're free from the power of sin. We're free from the authority of Satan. We are free to inherit all that Christ has purchased for us. For freedom, Christ has set us free. we got to understand our freedom. we got to protect it. Look at it. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again. You know, when you've, you've been enslaved, if you were a slave, it's a way of thinking. It's the, it's the only world you've known. We've talked about this before that even those who have been set free from the spiritual slavery to sin have this tendency to want to wander back. And that's what, I think somebody referenced it already today. But the Israelites were enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. And you want to talk about a miraculous freedom experience. You know the story, right? parting of the Red Sea, Moses and all those miracles. This is why you can rest assured that if you had more miracles in your life, they don't sustain. Jesus sets you free. Miracles are great, and they're examples of his power, but they don't sustain. Case in point, 400 years of slavery, Moses works, God works through Moses in ways that the world has never seen they get across, they go across the parts of the sea, going across on dry land. Can you imagine going down to the Atlantic Ocean today and, you know, and you're walking through? Can you imagine this? And it's not long before they're pining for the good old days. Back in Israel where we had those meat, or back in Egypt where we had those meat pots, and we were eating good. And then you've hauled us out here into the wilderness. Man, I'd rather be, back. I'd rather be a slave in Egypt. And following you, Moses. What? What? We drift back into slavery. And Paul says you got to stand firm and resist it. you got to resist your tendency and your temptation to go back to the world, to go back to sin, to go back to trying to satisfy yourself in the things of the world, to go back to, in their case, the law, trying to fulfill and please God through the law. Saying you got to resist that. I was thinking of, of an analogy of this, and for some reason God brought this to mind. When I was like seven years old, my best friend Kurt, um, we would go out on recess, 
And for whatever reason, Kurt, he wasn't like a, he was a, he was a, a tough kid. But for whatever reason, some of the bigger kids started to really bother him. And, uh, you know, like taking his lunch money kind of stuff, you know. And so he lived with this. He endured it for like two weeks. Like we would go out on recess and they were, they were like kind of extracting payment from him. And he lived in the misery of this for like two weeks. And I remember just saying, Kurt, man, I don't know. They were the older boys. Like you're, you're like seven or eight and they're like nine. You know, they were so big. You know, they were, they were 10. They were like sixth graders. We were like third or fourth graders. They were like, they were like Hulk Hogan, you know. Like, who are they? They're little kids. But they were extracting from him. And it was taking his joy. Like, he didn't want him to go out on recess. And I remember us talking about it. Like, you know, I don't know what else you're going to do. But you're going to have to stand up to him. You're going to have to say no. And I can still remember they came to Kurt. Like we saw him coming. They're coming down to collect quarters from Kurt. I don't know what kind of friend I was either. I should have like stepped up and said, yo, I ain't got no money and he doesn't either. But, but anyway, they came up to Kurt and I remember I was like, this is the day, Kurt. You got to stand up for yourself. You got to resist. You got you to gotta stand firm. And I remember his approach was this. It's still it's burned in my mind. Memories like we were seven or eight years old. But they went up and they said, yo, you know, give us whatever they were looking for. And he said, no. And they said, give it to us. And they went to push him. They went, they went to push him. And he did like a quick, <laughs> it's like in my mind, where he, he just, their hands came forward and he, get off me. Get off me. Get off me. Get off me. And I thought, that's a great picture of what it means to stand firm and not give in to the lies of the flesh, the lies of the world. You know what? There needs to be a little more get off me in our lives. A little more get, get away from me. I don't believe that anymore. I'm following Jesus. Get off me. How about some of that in your devotions tomorrow? A little more get off of me. That's how you protect it. Finally. I'm going a little longer this morning. Finally. What does it look like to use our freedom? What does it look like to use our freedom? Well, Paul makes it really clear what it looks like to use our freedom. It looks like this. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does it look like? How do we know? What is the indicator? What is the dashboard indicator of our lives that shows that you actually are enjoying Christian freedom, that you're understanding it, that you're protecting, that you're living in the good of it? What is it? What will be happening? Paul makes it so clear. It's loving service. That's the indicator. You're looking at the dashboard of your life right now and you're asking yourself, do you see Christian freedom being expressed in your life? If where you go is, yeah, I'm free to kind of do whatever I want and then I just tack Jesus on at the end and I know I'm forgiven. And a lot of people are living their lives that way. That's not Christian freedom. Christian freedom doesn't lend itself to selfishness. Christian freedom actually lends itself to service, or not lends itself, it results in not selfish behavior, other-centered behavior. 
Christian freedom leads to loving service. Paul is concerned here. You know, this is where I want to make sure we talk about this. Because now, in these next couple chapters, Paul's going to be talking about the things we do. But the things we do are in response to God's grace. They're not prior to God's grace to earn salvation. This is in response. What Paul is saying is, if you are a Christian then the resultant fruit in your life, if your heart has been totally transformed, if you are a new creation in Christ, then something happens. You stop living for self and you start living for others. Do you see that in your life? Do you see loving service indicated in your life? We should be concerned, just like Paul is concerned, about the formation of virtue in our lives. Paul, Paul expected that the Galatians would change. He expected that the gospel would change them. Do you expect that? Do you come to church expecting that God wants to change you? Or do you come to church expecting to receive something? Expecting just to get? Paul had this expectation that the Galatians were going to change that they were going to change into loving people, that they were going to grow. I've been talk, working through a book by Francis Chan with, with a guy, and we've just been talking through this stuff, that growth is actually expected, that change is expected, that obedience is, is, is expected, that the fruit of faith is love. The result of faith is love. The fruit of faith is service. That's what Paul is preaching. That's what he wants us to see. Do you show up to church gatherings looking to serve in love or looking for what you will get? Paul says the church is a place where you should be looking to serve. Now, you might say on Sunday morning, we're almost out of time. We're 70 minutes in. Kenny, you did all the talking. We did a lot of singing. Where was the opportunity for me to actually love someone and serve someone? If you look to Sunday morning to get all of that done, to, to, you put your Christian life into 75 minutes, you're misunderstanding Paul. You're misunderstanding the Bible. This isn't something that we just do. This is, now, it's not to say that you shouldn't come looking to serve. There's a whole group of people down there serving our kids. They came to serve. I don't know what their attitude was in doing it. I hope it was to, to bless and to serve, but we'll let God sort that out. But the point is, they're down there serving. They're down there loving and serving. We're up here receiving. What does it look like, though? Do you need to have a, a quick conversation with someone before they go out of here? No, no more. This is what we don't want. Oh, good sermon this week. Oh, good worship. Oh, Brandon did it today. I like when he plays the violin. See you next week. See you next week, and we'll do it again. That's not the Christian life. It's not Christianity. And if that's what you think Christianity is, 
Paul's got those three concerns for you. It's not consumerism. You see that video of the persecuted church? See what those churches look like? They don't look like necessarily like the mega churches of America. Those churches, many of them are built so that you can come and just consume. And the Bible has no category for that. You with me? It's getting quiet. We should expect growth. You remember when you had a newborn, and a lot of you have. I remember, it's been a while for me, 14 years since I had a newborn in the house. But I remember you had to check the diapers. Remember, you check to see if they're wetting their diaper. Are they getting enough to eat? You remember, I remember doing this, right? I did. We did this stuff. You weigh them. You take them to Aaron Chambers. You take them to your pediatrician. You weigh them to see if they're, if they're growing. Why? Because growth is expected. And if it's not happening, Aaron, the pediatrician, and others start to get concerned. What are we going to do? He's not gaining weight. He's not growing. You put the little marks in your, in your, uh, your closet or your pantry. The kids, they mark them, you know, and you, you have all these marks because they're growing. We expect growth. Do you expect growth from yourself? The Bible expects that you're going to grow in love and service. What? When what happens? When Jesus changes your life. Anybody with me? Do you expect growth? Francis Chan was sharing this illustration. People go to Harvard and Yale. They go to the best colleges in the, in the world. There's a CNN report I just saw. A Yale graduate who's homeless on the streets in in. California. Like you read that, and the reason why that makes the headline, there's a lot of homeless people in, in, in California. There's a lot of homeless people. Why does that make the headlines? Because you have higher expectations for a Yale graduate. If all Harvard graduates end up working at McDonald's, then there's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's. But why do we have higher expectations for someone who goes four years to Harvard or four years to Yale and spends like 70 times, like $300,000 to get their degree. There's an expectation of growth. There's, an ex, there's a high expectation. What should four years in Brandywine Grace produce? It ought to produce something. It ought to produce loving service to one another. Let me get Brandon to return. Paul expects that those set free will produce. In what way? In love. They'll use their freedom for love. Do you have that same expectation of yourself? Do you share God's expectation for your life? God's expect God made a huge investment into you. And I'm going to say it this way. He expects a return. He didn't stop. You know what Christ spent to invest into you? He gave His life. But he's expecting a return on that investment. Not so you can earn. Don't get it backwards. As an expression of your gratitude. God has so changed me that now I love and serve. We're going to end the sermon this way. We're going to just create some space where you can think about the things that God is speaking to us from the Word. Here's the question. You can close your eyes if it's helpful. What would it look like if the gospel 
so worked in your life that it produced a loving, fruitful response this week? What would it look like if you were to grow in love and service? What would it look like if you were to use your Christian freedom that Christ purchased for you to actually love and serve others? Let's just take a couple minutes to do that.